Tonight's reading from the New Testament is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, and can be found on page 4 of your bulletin. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with, jo with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. We do give thanks to you, God, as we're now in your presence. We ask that you might come to us uh, through your word and by your spirit to each of us at our point and place of need. And we'll thank you in advance. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you know, last week was Easter, and we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we're told, after Jesus rose from the dead, he presented himself over 40 days to his disciples with many convincing proofs. He knew that they were prone to doubt. He knew they needed proof. So over 40 days, he presented that he was very much alive, and the New Testament tells us that over 500 people witnessed that at some point. And we're also told that he taught them for 40 days, and this was probably the content of the New Testament that we have here, as he taught them, and then the Holy Spirit took them further. And after he taught them, we're told that he led them to a mountain where he ascended into heaven, and as they were looking up and gazing, uh, their, their eyes caught in that gaze, a couple angels showed up and said, why are you sitting there just looking up in the sky? This same Jesus that was taken into heaven will return to you in the same way. And so it's not just the resurrection or the ascension of Jesus Christ that forms the backdrop of understanding the Christian faith in the New Testament. It's the return of Jesus Christ that is the backdrop for the entire New Testament. I don't know if you think about that often. I don't. That the interpretive grid for me to understand things is really the shadow of the Lord's return. 
of Christ's return. And it not only is the backdrop of the New Testament, it forms the ministry of the church, and it's in almost every chapter of the book of Thessalonians. That's how often it's mentioned. In fact, if you could talk about one theme in the letter to the Thessalonians, it would be the return of Christ. Now, the return of Christ brings up lots of different questions and thoughts. I mean, there may be some of you here, some of us here that say, you know, isn't this really the stuff of legend and myth? This idea that, you know, God's going to return from heaven to earth. But it's really just like any other. It really gets down to the question, could anything supernatural ever happen? Can anything happen outside of what you understand to be a finite universe? Jesus was all about exploding those categories in our mind. And so the same Jesus who claimed that he would rise from the dead was the same Jesus who talked more about his return than anybody. Talking about it throughout the Gospels in the New Testament, preparing his disciples for his return. Told many parables, many truths about that. And then for those that actually think about the the return of Jesus, they tend to fall into two camps. The one is those that would obsess over the return of Jesus Christ. And there are some pockets of the church and the Christian faith where, you know, in fact, when I became a Christian, I entered into this Bible study, and every Bible study basically derailed into the return of Jesus. You know, no matter what we were studying, it all went into that stuff and that sort of theology. I think it's one thing to expect his return. It's another thing to be obsessed with it and think, well, this is the only thing. But I'm guessing most of us fall into a second category, and that is we rarely think about it. It rarely impacts the way we live day to day, Monday through Saturday, maybe even Sunday in our lives. And so the book of Thessalonians can really help us here. It can teach us what a healthy understanding of living in light of the return of Christ means, which is the series that we're going to be delving into for this part of the spring. Now, whether someone important to you returns can have a real impact and effect upon you. I was reading an article this week on families that have soldiers that are missing in action and some of the things that they go through. Uh, They go through a grief, but not like a grief of a soldier that's died. It's a particular sort of grief. It's a grief not knowing, living in the in-betweens. The family often feels unsure about its status in light of this missing loved one. Jesus didn't want his disciples to feel that way, so he prepared them for his leaving and his return. He said, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If that weren't so, I wouldn't lie to you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and get you because I'm a faithful Lord. I was faithful to come the first time. I'll be faithful to come the second time. Another thing that pondering the return of someone can be, it can focus you and get your priorities straight. Uh, my wife Meg was gone for a couple days this week, and uh, when I knew she was uh, going to return, I got busy, especially with things about the house. And I, I didn't do it just because she told me. I found myself doing things that I knew were important to her, even though they weren't on the honeydew list. You know, things that I thought, well, this is important to her. I'm going to do that. Did you notice that, honey? Oh, you did. Thank you. Okay. Anyway. Uh, But Jesus, in the same way, told lots of parables. 
in hopes that we might be able to prioritize, that we might be able to get in our mind uh, the importance and the focus, whether it be the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of using one's talents, the parable of final judgment. And those parables really said whether or not you expect him to return is an indicator whether you are fit to occupy heaven. I encourage you to read some of them in Matthew 24. They're very bold parables about the one that lives in light of the return of Christ. But thirdly, pondering whether someone's going to return also can be a source of strength. Again, I was reading some articles about um, soldiers this week and uh, about those that wait and families that wait for soldiers to return, and there's advice that's given to families, things like stay busy, stay active, remember the promises that you made to one another. And a third one was seek support, get a support group, because you'll need the strength of others. And that leads us into our passage this evening. Because it's hard to wait, right? Yeah. I don't know how you're waiting for God right now. Maybe it's waiting on healing. Maybe it's waiting on an answered prayer. Maybe it's waiting on Him to return. But you and I will not be able to wait obediently or faithfully without one another. We will not be able to do it on our own strength. And that strength shows up in faith. So the question I want to put before us this evening is, how, do, how does other people's faith affect you? How do other people's faith give you the strength to wait on God? Because Paul tells us there's two ways. One is the power of others' faith and the witness of others' faith. The power of others' faith and the witness of others' faith. So let's look at both of those together. First of all, the power of others' faith, how we experience it, how it impacts us. You know, there's an old country song. Some of you might know this, but you'd have to reach back pretty far. Uh, the lyrics go, you know, I can't get you off of my mind. When I try, I'm just wasting my time. Lord, I've tried and tried, and all night long I've cried, but I can't get you off of my mind. Anybody know who sang that? Well, I don't think I do either. George Jones? I thought it was George Jones. Maybe I'm wrong. Someone knows here, and I'm sure you'll correct me this week on that. But uh, you can imagine Paul and Silvanus and Timothy singing the same song over the Thessalonians. You know, the way they talk about it. Look at the verse here. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thinking about you all the time, is what Paul is saying. I can't get you off of my mind, is what he's saying. And he's saying this about the people of God. And notice, it's not occasional. Look at the words. We always, we constantly are thinking about you. You know, thinking about the faith of other people was a spiritual discipline for Paul. You know, just as there are certain things that we're told to do, right? We're told to go, if you want to know God, go to God's Word, pray. But for Paul, a discipline was thinking about other people's faith. It wasn't occasional. It also wasn't selective. He says, for all of you. I think we tend to appreciate the faith of people that we tend to appreciate, right? 
I mean, it's the people we tend to like or the people we idolize. But Paul is talking about the faith of everybody. Maybe somebody's faith here that you've never really given much thought to because you haven't given much thought to them. And it's not just selective. It says that the remembering is also not generic. He says you, right? The personal pronoun, you, over and over. You can get an example of this in Romans chapter 16 where Paul lists, he's doing his greetings, which were typical, and he's going the last chapter saying hi to this person, hi to this person. I think on the safe side, you could say he lists 30, at least 30 people, names plus families. I mean, the names of people were populating his prayers. Do the names of people populate your prayers? Specific people. And he also recalls their specific acts of faith and love. You know, a couple weeks ago, one of our members, one of our brothers in the congregation, gave a testimony, Tim. And he shared his testimony about how of his lifelong struggle with stuttering, but the way God has been meeting him and the way God has been showing him his weakness is actually a tool in the hands of God. And last week at Easter, there were a couple people that were members of Grace downtown some years ago, and uh, they wrote me an email this week. This is what uh, this person wrote. So, so fun for us to be at Grace. Worth the drive to D.C. to hear that testimony. I've thought about it a hundred times in the past week. My weakness, God's tool. Do you see that? Someone else's faith shown through weakness becomes strength to another person. You know what I'm talking about. We derive faith all the time. But the main thing we should see, it's not just Paul is thinking about them, thinking about the Thessalonians. He's thanking on them. He's thanking about them. You know, for us, thanks is sort of polite. Remember to write a thank you card. What do you say? Say thank you. In the Bible, thanking is not politeness. It's power. Thanksgiving is power. You know, there are lots of power sources that are underestimated. Maybe you'd say it was solar. Maybe you would say it was wind. I would say it's thanksgiving. That's the power source that many times we don't think about. It runs all throughout the Bible. It's a source of power that we often don't tap into. Paul has tapped into it. I mean, if, you would, if you're lacking thanks right now, or rather, if you are lacking faith right now, I would urge you this week to begin thanking God for things, for specific people, for things in your life. And it's not only a way that we recall, it's a way that people's Faith, their power comes to us. So, you know, as God is at work in your life and exerting his power, one of the ways I get access to, in fact, the main way I get access to it is through thanksgiving. As I thank God for you, I appropriate the power he's given to you in my life. I mean, that means I can get a whole lot of power as I give thanks to God. But it's important as well to see the destination of the thanks. Because it's not just the person that God is thanking, uh, Paul is thanking for. He says we give thanks before God. The thanksgiving just doesn't end up at the feet of someone. It ends up at the throne of God. That's really important as well. Because when we give thanks to God for another person, what it does, it opens the window of heaven for us. We begin to go, if God can work in their life, he can work in my life. God, if you're active in their life, I know you can do stuff in my life. It's amazing. You know, we hear people stand up, and sometimes they give amazing testimonies, right? 
Amazing stories of what God has done. His power, answers to prayer, healing, and we sit there as spectators. Well, if we begin to thank God for those things, you know what happened? You will begin to say, you can work that way in my life, God. This is the power that we're given in thanksgiving. But ultimately, what Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing is they're just reflecting God to the Thessalonians. God is the one. God is the one that never forgets. He's the one that's constantly saying to Israel, I remember you. I want your high priest to take all the tribes of Israel and write them on his chest, on his breastplate. So every time he goes into that sanctuary, you know that I know you by name. It's Jesus, the good shepherd, that says, I know my sheep by name. It's the Lord who says, I've written you in the palms of my hand. It's the high priest that never stops forgetting. Jesus Christ who prays constantly and consistently, I never forget you. You're always on my prayers. You're always on my lips. Maybe you heard Paul saying that and you said, I wish someone would talk about me that way. I wish someone felt, like, felt about me that way. That sounds like a love song. Someone does. It's the God of heaven and earth. He's the one. It's praying, thinking, can't forget about you and I. You know, so much of modern spirituality is individualistic, isn't it? And one of the sad things about it is it's an alone faith. You know, people basically say, well, this is my spirituality or my view of God or my faith. And you know what it means? You're alone. Nobody else's faith is with your faith. That's not what God meant for us to have. And so the power of others' faith, but also the impact of others' faith. Now we flip it. How did the Thessalonians, we talked about the way the Thessalonians were blessing the apostles' faith, but how did the faith of the apostles then bless the Thessalonians? They became more assured that they were beloved and chosen by God. That's what he says there. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Elsewhere we find this in the New Testament, right? Chosen and holy and dearly loved the elect of God. Now, you know, when we read those words, election or predestination, uh, immediately we, we sort of lock up. Maybe some of us go, oh, no, I hate that doctrine. I don't know why God put that in the Bible. That's so confusing to me. Or others of us immediately go into sort of uh, the intellectual mode and think about all the questions about it. Listen, I, it's natural it's natural to go that, you know, this doctrine is really hard for me to understand how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together. That's a natural thing to do. But you know something? You don't have to understand something to be blessed by it. I'm blessed by the Internet all the time. I can't figure out how that works. You know, and, and throw light bulbs in, too. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't get it. TV, I don't understand how things come through the air and I see a picture. There's lots of things that bless me I don't understand. Put predestination as one of them in your life. God could still bless you by it. But we also say, well, that's unfair. But that's mostly a cultural argument. You know, there's other cultures around the world. You could say God is sovereign, and they would go, yeah, that's right. But in America, we believe self-determination equals self-worth, right? We believe we determine ourselves. Therefore, the idea of predestination, the idea that God would choose and elect, offends us. But we're not thinking rationally, right? Just think for a moment all the things you didn't choose that have impacted your life. You didn't choose when you would be born. You didn't choose where you would be born. You didn't choose the family into which you would be born. You didn't choose the race you would be born. You didn't choose the socioeconomic level you'd be born. You didn't choose the color of your eyes. You didn't choose your height. You didn't choose your gifts. You didn't choose 
Lots of stuff. In fact, I could say those are the most shaping things in your life, and you didn't choose them. Thank God the the gospel tells us that our self-worth isn't in our self-determination. It's in the grace of God. It's in a sovereign, ruling, loving God that knows what's best, that can reach out. But lastly, I think why we really need to get this is because all this consternation robs us of consolation. Why does Paul say you're elected and chosen? Because he wants to console them. I, you know, what is one of the fears that anybody that really has followed Christ or knows Christ is, am I going to make it to the finish line, prone to wander? Like the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead the God I love. I feel that every day. Do you feel it? And here you have the God of heaven and earth saying, I will persevere with you. I will finish the work that I started with you. Even though your grip's like this, hanging off and on, my grip never lets go. That's why he tells them that. But I want you to notice how they get that information. And this is very striking. The way they come to know something so mysterious that they're elected and chosen, the deep counsels of God, how does it get mediated to them? Through other people. Paul says... You're chosen and loved by God because I see it in your life. So if you're doubting it, I want to let you know I see the fruit of God in your life. I mean, maybe we ought to dare to do that a little bit more, to say to one another, you know something, I praise God that you were chosen and elected by him because I see it in your life. I see it working in your life. So if you're feeling insecure about your relationship with God, get into community. Get deeper into community so that other people's faith can talk to your faith. But let's move to this witness of others' faith to close out here. The witness of others' faith, both in heart change and life change. Uh, First of all, in heart change, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. That means that they heard the truths of God in their whole person. To have full conviction means that God's truth isn't just impacting one part of me. Now, you know, we're all different in this room. Some of us uh, lead with our heads. We lead with our heads. God has just given the sort of thing where we think, we reason things out. Some of us lead with our hearts. We feel it and we go. Some of us lead with our feet. You know, we're, we're off and running even before we maybe know or feel. But you know something? We're called not to lectureize the gospel turn it into a lecture. We're not called to emotionalize the gospel, just make it feeling. We're not called to dutyize the gospel where I just do stuff. What we're called to do is allow the entire truth of God to impact every part of us. And so if you're someone here that leans the head, you really need to look close at the heart and the feet. And if you're someone that leads by the heart, well, maybe you need to go a little bit deeper into doctrines like predestination. Or if you're someone that just goes with your feet, you know, Washington's all about the feet. People want to get things done. People want to accomplish things and achieve things. Maybe it's the head and the heart. Why am I doing what I'm doing? But it not only was the witness of that in their lives, it was the witness that they had turned, Paul says, read with me, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Rather, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is where the Bible gives us tremendous insight. Now, you may see that word idol and you sit there and go, weren't those those like wooden statuettes that people would fall down to and worship? Those were primitive people, right? Well, it's actually more relevant than you might think. 
you, you got to ask yourself, why in the world would someone fall down behind a wooden statuette? Were they actually thinking, I just love wood? Isn't wood wonderful? Where this is a beautiful shape? No, it was why they were doing it. They were going to it for security, status, favor, acceptance. Do those things ring a bell for you? They do for me. And so we have our own idols today, right? It's not wooden statuettes, but maybe it's the idol of control. I have to know that there's control over my schedule and what people think about me and what I'm going to do tomorrow if I feel secure. Or maybe it's the idol of approval. You know, there's this list of people, if I ever disappointed them, it would be a nightmare to me. It scares me. Whenever I see the person, I just immediately start agreeing with them. Yeah, yeah, they could say something crazy, and I would just agree with them, right? Or maybe for you, it's the idol of ideology. That's big in this town, right? My thoughts, my opinion, my platform, what I view, that becomes your idol and your definition of who you are. Maybe it's, you know, comfort idolatry. I've got to be comforted. Maybe it's independent idolatry. I've got to be free from everybody to feel like my life has meaning. Maybe it's dependent idolatry. Unless I'm dependent on someone, a new relationship, I don't feel like I'm anybody. Maybe it's suffering idolatry. Unless there's a crisis in my life, I don't feel like I have any meaning in my life. Maybe it's religion idolatry. In my life, it's really important that I just check boxes and do what I want. Maybe for you, it's irreligion idolatry. I've got to stay far away from, you know, religion as much as I can. The point is, it's the same stuff, all this stuff that you and I go to for status, for acceptance, for hope, for security. We're just like the ancients were. And Paul says what happened with the Thessalonians is they got free from that because they found Jesus Christ. They found the Son of God who was their security, who was their status, who was their meaning. You and I will never be free from that unless we get connected with God because we were made by him. And so with the work of Jesus Christ as he comes and he dies the death that you should have died and lives the life you should have lived, as he you know, takes the shame and guilt that drives our idols and he gives us free righteousness that comes from his life, you and I begin to turn, we get free. We turn away from the living God and that is a powerful witness. I mean, I'll tell you something. I, I was hearing an interview uh, with singer-songwriter James Taylor. And uh, he was reflecting back on his time when he was uh, really in the clutches of drug abuse. And he was walking on the streets of New York, and he ran into another musician. Uh, the guy's dead now, but he was probably the best tenor saxophone player that lived in our generation, Michael Brecker. You've heard him on different songs, and anyway. But Brecker had been an addict, too, and Taylor said, I was walking by him, and I saw him, and he looked totally different. He just looked well, and I, I just said, what happened to you? And he said, well, if you want to know, come see me. Come see me. He saw someone freed from his idols. It was a powerful witness, and it helped change his life. As people in the city begin to see someone that's free from approval, free from the achievement idols, free from all those things, it's powerful. And it's through Christ that we get there. But it's not just heart transformation, it's life change to close, both through endurance and extent. Paul says, you become imitators of us and of the Lord, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. What was about the witness that was so powerful? Two things. One was, it was a witness, it, a life, it was a life that had been tried and tested. I've mentioned to you before, there's a book that Tim Keller's written called Walking with God in Pain and Suffering. 
And Tim, as typical Tim, does such a brilliant job talking about, you know, why we get the theology and the reasons we get stuck up and hung up and all this stuff. But I think one of the smartest things they did, they end each chapter with a personal story of someone that had suffered but held on to their faith. It's those stories that you and I need. You know, the stories in this community of people that are bearing crosses. Because it's faith that is tested that's really attractive. That's the faith that convinces people. I know there's part of me that always thinks the way I'm going to be a witness is show everybody I have it together. I'm going to be so impressive in my achievements and the way I speak and my goals and my life and what my family looks like. They're going to go, you're so impressive, how can I become a Christian? It's just foolhardy. You know what people want to see. Is this for weak people? Is this thing carry me through the wounds and pains of my life? And you say, yeah, have you seen the Savior? He has scars in his hands and his feet. He's the only Savior who came that endured suffering and saved through suffering. Although he was God, he took on flesh and became a man of sorrows. Yes, this is the faith for you. But lastly, this is why it spread. He says that their faith had spread all the way to northern and southern Greece. I mean, I don't know how big this church was. I can't believe it was that big. But this was like the little engine that could, right? Paul and the apostles are going, I mean, like we travel around really far and people have heard about your faith and what you've done. Uh, there's a Greek word that's used by Paul here, and, and it's one that he doesn't use anywhere else in the New Testament, I think. And listen to the way they define this word he uses that their witness was like a resounding noise. It was like ocean waves. It was like the uproar of a crowd. It was like trumpets blowing. It was like thunder rolling. It was reverberating through the hills and the valleys of Greece. May it be said of us. I mean, may it be said, I would love the day where the listening were the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Spirit are up in heaven. And they're talking about us, you know, because Paul says one of the outcomes of uh, the Thessalonians was we didn't have to work so much there. Like, we thought we are going to have to send a bunch of people there to witness, but we didn't have to because you, your witness went ahead of us. You made less work for us. Wouldn't it be great to have the Trinity say that about Grace D.C. in Washington? You know, I thought we were going to have to send some more people there, but I don't think we have to. I mean, those congregations, they're just like witnessing in that city with word and deed. It's contagious. The way they're letting loose their idols, the way they're persevering and suffering. You know, I don't think we have to send any more pastors, missionaries, or any Christians there. I think that city's good. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony? But what I want us to see is it's all happening through other people. It's happening through you. I mean, the return of Christ, basically what he's saying to us is the power we get through one another and our faith is the way that we will persevere and sustain. This is a powerful community because of the gospel, because God is at work. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We give you thanks that you remember us. We give you thanks for your power. I give you thanks for the power I get from these brothers and sisters. Oh, Lord, I pray that your fame would spread through us. In Christ's name, amen.